Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I chat with Sam Wong, Professor of Neuroscience and Molecular Biology at Princeton. Sam is also a co-founder of the Princeton Election Consortium, a site focused on analyzing and predicting U.S. national elections. We talk about the site's prediction algorithm and this crazy election cycle, and the role neuroscience may have played. We also talk about the current research Sam and his team are working on, the U.S. Brain Initiative, and the powerful role governments play in academic research. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me today, Sam. Oh, a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with a bit about you. Get into your background a little bit and what you're up to now. Oh, well, let's see. So I'm a neuroscientist at Princeton University. I've been here since 2000. Uh, My original background's in physics, and I, I made a transition from physics into neuroscience when I saw that that was where a lot of the good problems were. And, uh, and since then, I've worked on all kinds of problems in neuroscience and also in, uh, in actually politics, oddly enough, because the statistical tools are kind of similar. Right, right. You mentioned the politics. So we'll start, we'll start with that before we get into the neuroscience and the brain research. Um, one of your very topical projects is the Princeton Election Consortium. Can you give us an overview of that project and how your prediction algorithms work? Sure. So as I said, uh, I run a neuroscience research laboratory, and we do a lot of reasonably advanced signal processing where we have to extract noise from, uh, extract, sorry, signal from noisy individual observations. And that's a pretty standard thing that people have to do in uh, experimental sciences. So the Princeton Election Consortium is basically my effort to turn that into getting a really clear view of the presidential race and also down ticket races. Uh, And so what we do at the site is we collect publicly available polls. Uh, This is a a website that's at election.princeton.edu. We take those uh, polls and then feed them into a a script that uh, I've written and scripts that my students have written. And uh, on an automated basis, we take those polling data and we turn the polling data into a clear, sharp snapshot of exactly where the presidential race appears to be at any given moment on any day during the campaign. And so it's sort of a tracking index that says what would happen in an election today? And we do it using um, what I would call optimal statistical tools. And how does your technique differ from other prediction sites like 538? Yeah, so my site started in 2004 uh, during the Kerry versus Bush campaign. And that was a really close race where the lead switched uh, several times. Right. And when I... uh, when I started doing it, uh, there were just a few people doing it, a few hobbyists. There's a computer scientist in the Netherlands named Andrew Tannenbaum who uh, just served up polling data on a map and a, an automated feed. So that was the way he did it. And there were other hobbyists who did it too. So um, so here's what we do. We, um, the Princeton Election Consortium is open source, and so anybody can download the scripts. They're written in MATLAB and in Python, uh, and there's some shell scripts. And so anybody can download the stuff and run it for themselves. Uh, you know, they have to have MATLAB. So that, you know, is something that they need to be able to, to run. Um, we try to keep it simple. So uh, over at 538, there's a very technical approach that I think, uh, I'm not really sure, I don't know much about it, but I, I think that it's sort of an econometric approach where what they're attempting to do, it seems, is adjust every data point uh, one by one and try to get each data point as well adjusted as they, as they can. And then put them all together into a single snapshot. So what we do is something that doesn't require those adjustments. And really anybody who reads uh, the Princeton Election Consortium could do it. We take all the available state polls for, uh, for a given state, say Virginia, for example, which is a competitive state. And we take the median margin 
for that state between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the median margin uh, of all the polls. And that gives the best estimate of what the likely margin is going to be in the election. And then we use the spread in that uh, in that set of data to figure out how probable it is that Hillary Clinton uh, or Donald Trump is in the lead. Hmm. So that's one probability. And then we do that over and over again for all 51 races, the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. And we do it over and over again. And so in each case, there's an outcome that's uh, it's like a coin toss, except the, the coin is, you know, the coin toss is worth some number of electoral votes. And then combine all those probabilities using just some simple math trick, uh, a, a function in MATLAB that's called convolve. But anyway, we take turn all those probabilities into an exact distribution uh, that has lots of sharp peaks in it, corresponding to particular combinations of states. And it's anywhere from zero to 538 electoral votes for Hillary Clinton and the same for Donald Trump. So all that's done automatically. Uh, and then that tells us how conditions are today. And then on top of that, we um, add some assumptions about where things are likely to go by election day. And that's uh, a random drift factor. And that random drift factor um, gives us a view of what is likely to happen on November 8th. Interesting. So we, yeah, okay, so we do ahead. that. Yeah, so we do that. And um, and there's more stuff to talk about, uh, about how to sharpen the prediction and make it as accurate as possible. Uh, and uh, and there's also down ticket stuff in the Senate and House that we also do. Right. And so this you noted that you started this in 2004. Um, so this is what your fourth U.S. presidential election, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. And so was this one more difficult to predict? No, the huge irony is that the hardest one to predict of all was 2004, when John Kerry was in the lead at one point, and then George W. Bush was in a, at another point. And in the home stretch, it all came down to one state, which if, if the state of Ohio had flipped the other way, then in fact, John Kerry would have become president. Oh. And so that was actually a tough race to predict. Um, it is an irony that uh, that the whole poll aggregation business that, that's been made so famous, you know, mainly by Nate Silver, um, it has really become famous during a period when races have become less suspenseful. And there's two reasons for that. One is that uh, in, the, in the two races since then, 2008, 2012, and now this year, um, the le races have become more stable. There's something that's made races more stable generally in the last 20 years. And we're now in the third election in a row when things are relatively stable by historical standards. And so Hillary Clinton's been uh, in the lead for the entire season, um, as measured by my state polling snapshot. And, uh, and her lead has gotten smaller or larger, but she has always been in the lead. And this is the first time that an open presidential race uh, where there's no sitting president running for a reelection. Um, this is the first time that an open presidential race has been like this since Eisenhower was first elected in 1952. So, so you know, from a statistical standpoint, it is a really calm, um, I wouldn't say boring. Uh, nobody could call this race boring. <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a really steady race, statistically speaking, uh, because of how stable public opinion has become in the last 20 years. Right. And so th this l next little bit that we talk about here won't be um, evergreen. So I apologize to the future, future people who've already endured the reality of this. But um, <laughs> so as of this morning, you've got Clinton's probability of winning at 95 percent random drift and 97 percent Bayesian. Um, so first of all, the difference between those, the random drift is the prediction of what's going to happen and the no. Bayesian okay. is, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Tell me uh, the difference sorry between to those interrupt. two. Yeah. No, so, no. So, so the Bayesian is uh, my best estimate of what is going to happen. So this is, here's how to unpack this. So I, I went through this big song and dance with you about how we come up with a snapshot. 
what we do with that is convert it to a prediction. And the way to convert it to a prediction is to first convert that uh, electoral outcome into a, a margin. So it's not, uh, it's, it's, I call it a meta margin. So it's how much the polls would have to shift in either direction in order to make the, uh, the election a perfect toss up where we would have no idea what would happen in either direction. So first we convert it to a meta margin. Then the question is, well, how much could opinion move? And so random drift refers to the idea that, well, opinion could move in either direction. And, uh, and so if it could move in either direction and, and, and we have no idea what, then there's a 95% probability as of today, which is October 12th, that Hillary Clinton would still be in the lead on election day. Now, the Bayesian thing is my best attempt to use the, the polls, the same polls that I used to take the snapshot, except now I use those same polls to figure out uh, what's, where, where the drift is likely to go. And the assumption that I put in here is something that's worked pretty well for the last three elections. It's actually worked even uh, pretty well all the way back to Eisenhower, if you look carefully at the data, which is that in any given moment in time, we have a pretty good idea of where opinion is likely to go because opinion's been measured since the begin beginning of the year in polls. And so there's a range over which people are likely to, to have uh, change their minds. Um, and that range is what uh, I said is the likely range, and that's called a Bayesian prior. And so the idea is that that's the likely range of where things are going to be. So sure, opinion could drift, but it's more likely to be in that range than to go outside that range. And so what the Bayesian probability here is taking into account the fact that we already know a lot about where people have mentally been since the beginning of the year. And once we put that in, uh, since people have been, um, on average, the electoral mechanisms have favored Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump, that improves her win probability a little bit to 97%. Now, we're pretty late in the season now. It's, it's less than four weeks uh, to the election. And so at this point, random drift is really going to become the most important factor here because there's just not enough time for people's opinions to change very much. And so, uh, and so at this point, the random drift probability and the Bayesian probability are, are going to get closer and closer to each other. Right. And so how you, you sound like you're very, very confident in this prediction. What, what would have to happen to turn it on its head for Trump to win? What would have to happen for Donald Trump to win the presidency? Uh, <laughs> I just want to well, sleep better at night. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you, so you don't want me to like, you don't want apocalyptic language about like, you know, the sky's turning red or something. Right. Like that. Okay. Right. So, so in terms of numbers, what it would take to happen is that if you take undecided voters plus Gary Johnson and Jill Stein voters, that adds up to about 10%. Um, the reason that opinion has been so immovable in the last 20 years is, uh, appears to be what, uh, what political scientists call polarization, where people get really set and they really become committed to their party and against the other party. And that's been true for uh, ever since Clinton's re-election in 1996. And so people are not very movable. And this election being so uh, volatile emotionally has the ironic effect of making opinion stable. Because if you feel very strongly emotionally, uh, which a lot of people in the U.S. do right now, about the presidential race, then your opinion is not likely to change. And so what that means is that what it probably comes down to is what undecided voters are going to do, what Gary Johnson supporters will do, and what Jill Stein supporters will do. Usually, minor party candidates lose support in the home stretch. So most of those Gary Johnson and Jill Stein supporters are going to eventually choose up sides. Uh, you know, they're probably going to choose whichever candidate they like less. So if they like Hillary Clinton less, then they'll vote for Trump. If they like Donald Trump less, then they'll vote for Hillary Clinton. So there's about 10% of people undecided right now, or Johnson and Stein supporters. Uh, my estimate is that they would have to break about, um, let me see, they would have to break about uh, five to one uh, in favor of Donald Trump for Trump to have a chance at winning the presidency. So that's approximately what it would take. 
And have we ever seen anything like that in history? <laughs> that would be unusual. Okay. It would it would it would not be common for undecided voters to break so heavily for one candidate or the other. A fairly typical thing for undecided voters to do is to split approximately down the middle. So a five to one split is pretty unlikely. Now there are other possibilities. So for instance, uh, opinion could move a little bit towards Trump, and then the undecided voters wouldn't then would not have to break quite as much, right? So for instance, if if you know even though people are polarized and set in their opinions. Uh, the race is only within five to seven percentage points right now. Mm -hmm. And so if a couple of percent, you know, if one or two percent of voters uh, swung back towards Trump uh, of the of the ones who report a preference to pollsters, then undecided voters would only have to break, you know, say two to one in his favor. Uh, but, you know, it's an uphill climb for him. I, I think it would be, um, you know, the, the probability on on election.princeton.edu is currently listed at 97%. And I think that captures pretty well the, the uncertainties. Right. And so to segue a little bit back into the neuroscience and the brain research, um, there's been a lot of talk about how we arrived where we are in this election. And one phenomenon that I came across in your book, Welcome to Your Brain, struck me as appropriate, the source amnesia. Can oh, you, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about source amnesia and the role that it's playing in, in political campaigns and, and in everyday life? Yeah. So um, it turns out that there uh, at this year's political campaign and political campaigns in general are rich fodder for uh, probing how the brain works. Uh, as you say, um, source amnesia, another example of, uh, of the neuroscience and the cognitive science of voting is uh, undecided voters. How undecided are they? Are they so? There's all kinds of things that one can bring up, but but in the domain of source amnesia, uh, I wrote about this with my book co-author Sandra Amet. Um, gosh, back during Barack Obama's first term, um, as actually before he became president in the summer of 2008, Sandra and I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, with the title. I think the title was "How Lies Live and Grow in the Brain," and people are welcome to look this up. Uh, basically, we were trying to figure out why is it that so many people seem to. It was something like 20% of people at the time, believed that Barack Obama was not born in Hawaii, where he was born, but in Kenya. And so the idea being here that what is now called the birther movement of people who doubt the birthplace of, uh, of an American who, uh, who was the favorite to become president. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, one thing is that we live in a complex media environment where there are pretty credible sources that get fact-checked, uh, which involves places like NPR or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And then we have other sources that seem to be only loosely fact-checked or not fact-checked at all, like, uh, you know, Breitbart or, uh, you know, honestly, Fox News has a lot of things on it that aren't really true. Um, <laughs> and, well, you know, that's just, yeah. that is the case. Uh, I mean, they you know, a lot of things they say are true, but a lot of things they say seem to not be true. Um, and so in a mixed media environment where there's all kinds of information coming at us, uh, it is really hard for people to remember where they heard a thing. And it's quite common for people to say things like, well, I heard X and then are, you know, they're unable to remember where they heard it. So for instance, I, I don't know, um, what's the capital of France? Paris. Okay. Where were you when you learned that fact? No clue. Okay. So, right. So that's good. If, if you had remembered, I would have been really <laughs> would... shocked. That, that, that would have been amazing. Um, so what happens is that when the brain acquires information, it sorts out the information from the context and uh, and basically discards the context and then keeps the information. And we do this all the time. It's it's a normal memory mechanism. But one consequence of that is that we will remember, oh, I think I heard that, I think that I heard that uh, Hillary Clinton um, gave away secrets to the Russians in her email or, or, or the Hillary Clinton likes peanut butter and bologna sandwiches or, or, or whatever it might be. And 
And I think I saw that in the New York Times. Yeah, that's it. I saw it in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or what have you. Um, and so it's possible to remember a piece of information separately from the context in which we heard it. And so that's, you know, that's a, a, what psychologists call a cognitive bias, where we, we forget whether a piece of information is credible. And then there's a uh, phenomena like bias assimilation, where we, um, where we are more likely to accept a piece of information if it agrees with our prior views. And this actually gets back to the Bayesian thing you were asking about. So Bayesian inference is a thing that I do statistically for election prediction, but Bayesian inference is something we all do in everyday life because we have to make sense of the world around us. So uh, to pick the example of Barack Obama's birthplace, um, if your prior view is that that you don't like Barack Obama or that in your previous experience, only white guys become president, then this person, Obama, shows up and, you know, he doesn't look like those other presidents. And so something's wrong. And so if you have some bias, even if it's not an, a conscious bias, if something seems off to you or it seems disagreeable to you that, that Obama would become president, then maybe you might become receptive to the idea that he was not born in the U.S. Um, and so, in fact, if you look at the, the demographics of birther belief, uh, birther belief is, is predominantly among Republican voters. Uh, very few Democratic voters believe this and, uh, and you know, also a, a relatively small number of independent voters. And so for some reason, you know, it's not like Republicans are dumber than Democrats. There's, but there's something about Republicans where they have some prior set of beliefs that leads them to be receptive to the idea that, that Obama was born outside the U.S. And, you know, in, 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 you know, in that context, it's just a cognitive bias that we have, and, and, and we see it uh, in the particular case of that. And so I think that um, getting back to the general subject of mass media and also, you know, narrow cast media, we have all kinds of sources of information available to us now. Facebook, Twitter, uh, news feeds, talk radio, email, and we have all these channels of information. And it's really super hard uh, for any individual to really cut through all that clutter and get accurate information, even if some of those channels of information are high quality. So, um, so I, I think that actually these cognitive biases make it super tough for citizens to, to really get by in, uh, in what should be a golden age of information. That's really interesting. And you noted, um, and I'm, here's my source amnesia, I can't remember what story it was in, but you, <laughs> you noted um, that, that it can be unintentional as well. Like the media can be reporting the fact that Obama was not, in fact, born in Kenya. He was born in Hawaii. And yeah. but by doing that, they're reinforcing the tendency in the people who are already tending to believe that he was not born in the U.S. They're reinforcing that for them. Yeah, this is super tough because consequently, once a story gets legs, it is really hard to undo that story because all people will remember is the false statement. And, and you know, you may have noticed that when I talked about this, the first thing I started off with was Barack Obama was born in Hawaii. OK, right, so, right. you know, and if you recall, Barack Obama was born in Hawaii. Uh, and so um, and that's a that's a real challenge because news media uh, reporters are trained uh, often to fact check and to do a good job within their stories. But, you know, it's not part of your training to go fix somebody else's stories. It's just like, gosh, you know, like one might as well try to spoon out the ocean than to fix all the misinformation. And so one tough aspect of, of news media these days is finding ways. I think for reporters, one of the difficulties is finding ways to put everything into context very briefly within a story so that people understand why something is true or false. And so I think that's that's one major challenge of um, of of conveying accurate information. Another challenge is Figuring out how to, um, I mean, this is a big challenge that not any one person can address, but figuring out 
how to create a media ecosystem in which right information uh, is more likely to get into people's heads. So, for example, um, it's actually not a bad thing, for instance, for for media organizations to bring on people uh, of opposing viewpoints, because bringing in people of opposing viewpoints actually causes ideas to get examined critically. And it's possible to have everything in one neat package where you get to see it all at once. I mean, just to give you an example, it actually gives people a direct comparison between Clinton and Trump to see them next to each other, right? Mm -hmm. Debates have an important function where you see a direct interaction between these two very different candidates. But anyway, getting back to getting to the truth of things, um, I I think that it's a major challenge in media uh, how to get information across accurately to people Mm -hmm. and have it stick. Right, right. Okay, well, turning to academic research now, um, what are you and your teams at Princeton working on? Oh, well, uh, in the lab, we're super excited about some stuff we're doing now trying to understand how cognitive and social abilities arise in the brain. So for the last 15 years at Princeton, um, I've been uh, interested in how the brain changes in response to experience. So how learning happens and how development happens. And for a lot of that time, I've been interested in sort of the nuts and bolts of how single connections work. We use optical methods and advanced molecular biological methods to, to watch brain activity in action. We can do things like uh, use optical methods to watch a brain circuit in the brain of a mouse uh, as the mouse is navigating a virtual maze or as the mouse is investigating some puzzle that it has to solve, like a simple maze. So, so a lot of what we've been doing is just understanding how the brain integrates information to learn from its environment. That involves multiple brain systems, and I study a brain region called the cerebellum, which, which people think of usually, if you look in textbooks, it's usually a brain region that's important for balance or movement. But uh, the way it does that is by integrating sensory information to try to keep mental processes on track. So that's a, a big part of what we're doing now. And in the last few years, uh, if I can go on a little bit. Sure. Um, so right now, we've become very interested in the possibility that the cerebellum controls not only fine actions in adult life, but it might even act to shape the growing brain. And, uh, and one piece of information we have that suggests that is some clinical evidence that others have noticed, which is that if babies uh, by accident have some injury to the cerebellum at birth, so if there's a difficult birth like a bleed, then the odds of autism go up by a factor of 40. I mean, it's, uh, it's bigger than the risk that comes from, say, uh, say that it's bigger than the cancer risk that comes from smoking. Wow. There, there's a tremendous risk. And so what we suspect based on that is that maybe the cerebellum is some kind of guide that plays an absolutely necessary function for babies to grow their mental capacities. Uh, And so what we think is just as the cerebellum guides coordinated movement, uh, what we think is that maybe the cerebellum acts to guide the development of coordinated thought, where babies learn to recognize faces and voices and pick up language. There are all these incredible things that babies do. And we're really deeply immersed in testing the idea that, that this is a part of the brain that helps teach the rest of the brain come online. So that's a big thing we're doing in the lab. And so kind of down the line, like what are some practical applications of the stuff that you're finding out? Well, let's see. So just to back up a little bit, the things that we know about autism, I would say that the number one thing that biological researchers know about autism uh, in terms of how it's caused is that it appears to be inherited. There's combinations of genetic factors that, that babies get from their mom and their dad. And those combinations of factors lead to normal outcomes most of the time, nearly all the time. But sometimes there's exceptions, and one exception is autism. So what I think that could come out of research like mine is the possibility of understanding exactly how those genetic factors get converted into brain mechanisms, developmental mechanisms that drive a developing brain off track. And if let's say that, let's say that my hypothesis is correct. Let's say that the cerebellum plays a, a role as te- for, in teaching the rest of the brain. This now gives us a brain target 
for intervening to help with autism. So just to do a little bit of, you know, a one minute course in clinical neurology for decades, people have known about Parkinson's disease for over a century. But the key discovery was understanding that Parkinson's disease arose from a very particular brain region, the substantia nigra, and a very particular kind of neuron, a neuron that makes the chemical dopamine. And when those neurons start dying, that's Parkinson's disease. And that just opened up immense vistas in trying to address what happens to people in Parkinson's. So knowing what brain region go, goes off track in autism at an upstream level, so knowing what it goes wrong in a, in a causative way that causes other brain regions to go off track uh, could be tremendous. And so if, if there's any truth to what we're studying in the cerebellum, then the cerebellum could be a target of therapies. It could be a target of brain stimulation. Uh, it could be combined with existing therapies that autistic kids uh, now get to help them get back on track. And, you know, currently, uh, at least 50% of kids with autism, even if they get early intervention, uh, are not helped by that intervention and remain on the spectrum. And so it would be fantastic to get that 50% up to, you know, 70, 80%. I mean, imagine some future in which we are born with all kinds of genetic potential and kids who are headed towards being on the spectrum and, you know, end up in some other endpoint that is still unusual, but where they can live independently. So this would obviously make a big difference for them and their families. Right, right. And so looking back over the last year or so in your research, has anything surprised you? Have you been, has anything been unexpected? Well, let's see. I mean, gosh, if I look back, uh, you mean in my own research findings? Sure. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I think in the first phase of being a, an investigator at Princeton, uh, early on, we were studying how single connections change strength, and we were very surprised that they didn't change uh, in a continuous manner. They were like little digital switches where when a single connection of the brain, which is called a synapse, when a synapse learns, it appears in the first tens of minutes, it's like a little on-off switch where it's binary. It's like it's either high strength or low strength. And that was something that we had not been anticipating. So so that was a cool finding that that came early on in my uh, in my research career. Um, right now, honestly, this uh, this business about the cerebellum uh, being a teacher for the rest of the brain, we're just gathering evidence for that, um, mostly using mice, uh, where we uh, where we drive the development off track early in development, and we can see that they behave oddly later. And I can tell you that that is actually a pretty novel idea. Uh, and so I, I'm just the idea that internal conversations within the brain can be how the brain learns from the from the external world. So that that you know, it's like the matrix. No information comes in directly into the brain. It all comes in an indirect fashion. And so one thing we're studying now is the possibility that some of that indirect conversation inside the brain can actually act as a teacher to the brain. And this is an idea that people have known about for a long time. Um, but I, I'm super excited to see that this brain region, the cerebellum, might be part of that internal conversation. And at what point in research would you turn um, from mice to humans? Oh, well, we're actually starting to do that now. I, uh, I, we're a little bit early on in this, but uh, one question is whether, in fact, these things that, that go off track in mice also go track, off track in humans. So um, mice and humans have similar brain structures at a very broad level, but obviously human brains have far greater capacities in some ways. Uh, and so one question is whether these things port back and forth. So, for example, I said that babies uh, who have uh, a difficult birth with injured cerebellum um, often turn out autistic. Um, there are ways to study babies in, by looking at brain structure or by testing what kinds of things they're able to do in the first year of life. I think it is possible for, it's a long road, but I think understanding the basic biology of how brains function in animals in the long run um, very much sets the conceptual stage 
for understanding what our brains do. And it's this, it, you know, it's this broad um, canvas in which uh, there is this context that comes from understanding basic brain function uh, that very much puts clinical work into practice or into context. And I, I've actually had in the last year had some just amazing conversations with clinicians and uh, scholars of human development who, whose experiences very much echo what we see in the lab. And it's been fascinating going back and forth with them. Hmm. And I'm curious to know, um, governments have recently been focusing on more on brain research, um, the U.S. Brain Initiative, for instance, or Europe's Human Brain Project. What is your take on these projects? Are they helpful for the advancement oh, of neuroscience? It's a good time for that. So when I was earlier in my career, there was something called the Decade of the Brain, which was a, a very well-publicized attempt to improve um, our understanding of the brain. And that was okay, but I think I would characterize that as mainly a source of money. So the Brain Initiative is interesting. It's, it, it takes one form in the United States. Um, there's a, a, something related to the Brain Initiative uh, called the Human Brain Project that's going on in Europe. Um, I am very much part of the Brain Initiative. I'm one of hundreds of investigators who are, who are part of that, or maybe 100 investigators, I would say. The Brain Initiative is really development of technology for understanding how brain circuits work and also for mapping those brain circuits. And this is a really great time to be developing those technologies. So these are technologies to, um, to watch what a brain circuit does in real time, cell by cell, uh, to manipulate a brain circuit to understand what it does, to map brain circuitry to, in, in a domain that's called connectomics. So for instance, in my lab, we're developing a tool that is a fluorescent molecule that's part of the molecule comes from a jellyfish. It's called green fluorescent protein. Part of it is a, a, a sensor of neural activity. And we are engineering it to uh, give a little pop of fluorescence every time there's an, uh, an electrical impulse in a neuron. And we're engineering it to, to give that little pop of light and have that pop of light come down again before the next impulse. And if, if we succeed, I mean, this is getting kind of into the weeds of what we do in my lab, but if we succeed, we will have a probe that allows us to watch electrical impulses in a brain circuit uh, at frequencies of tens of impulses per second. And so this is a time when the, that kind of technology is becoming possible. It's possible to manipulate brain circuitry, to map it. Uh, I think that these technologies, which come from molecular biology, from physics, from biochemistry, um, th these are from genetics, these are going to be the gateway to understanding how all brains work. And so I think that the Brain Initiative is, um, it's, you know, it's a little technical, so it's not the kind of thing you read about in the newspapers every day, but it, it is, uh, in many ways, it is our moonshot. And so what are some of the long-term goals of the initiative? Uh, an example of a long-term goal of the initiative would be to um, understand long-distance brain pathways enough to know what a detailed roadmap or city map, whatever you want to call it, but like a, a detailed map, not just of where the connections are, but also what the connections do. And hand-in-hand hand with that, to understand, say, when we learn a new piece of information or when we navigate a new situation, or when we engage in social interaction, when we do these things, regions all over the brain work together to, um, to execute those things. And so to understand any mental action in terms of the entire brain as a whole object, and at the same time, understand it in detail would be a research endpoint. And then that's the research endpoint. And then, you know, at some point when clinicians get hold of these ideas, then the clinical endpoint is going to be to understand what happens uh, when things go wrong or to help people reach their potential when they uh, encounter an obstacle or to understand what it is about the brain that, uh, that uh, you know, that could work better. So I think that it's, uh, 
it's a real gateway to to making uh, to helping people uh, be the best people they can be, uh, whether they're babies or old people or just everyday adults. Um, uh, you know, that's I, I'm going out pretty far in time now, decades in the future. Uh, but I think the near term goal is to simply understand in detail how the brain works as an orchestra of hundreds of players within the brain all working with each other. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, it's why I went into neuroscience back in the 1980s. And, uh, and it looks like it's coming within reach. And so focusing sort of on the, the government involvement specifically, um, you worked in the U.S. Senate at one point, is that right? I did. I, uh, during my postdocs, after finishing my PhD, I was working at Duke and I got a fellowship from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I took a year away from the lab and I worked on Capitol Hill and I worked on education policy, research policy. Uh, I wrote speeches. So it was, uh, it was a, a total safari compared with being <laughs> in the laboratory. I know most people think the lab is weird, but I, I thought uh, watching how Congress operates up close, that was, uh, that was quite a trip. And so given that experience, and you've got you know, experience in both camps, um, what role do you think government should play going forward in scientific research? Well, first off, government is by far the major source of basic science, uh, basic research funding in the United States. Without federal support, basic research in the U.S. would come to a stop. And so the main engine of research and discovery in the United States is, in fact, the federal government in terms of money. And uh, and so there is a major role for the federal government there because the government will do things that are for the common good that individual companies are unlikely to do because it's just not, you know, it, it, it doesn't help an individual company's bottom line often. And, you know, in the, in the information technology domain, the same is true uh, of companies like Facebook and Google. But I think in the basic sciences, there is just no real constituency for basic science research other than our tax dollars. And so I think that's the major role. Uh, the other kinds of roles are uh, the federal government played a central role in coordinating the brain initiative. I think that the government, when it operates properly, uh, can be a neutral broker that brings together um, academics, industry, uh, nonprofits, uh, foundations, and so on can bring everybody together to to shoot for goals, you know, whether it be the cancer initiatives, whether it be neuroscience. I think the federal government plays an important role in being a central, I don't know what to call it, public square uh, coordinating center. Basic research really needs the federal government in ways that I think they're underappreciated. I, I can tell you safely that if federal support for basic research went away, I would have to hang up my hat and I would not be able to do research anymore. Right, right. And so... To bring us to an end of our discussion today, I ask everyone this at the end. Who and or what are you finding inspiring today? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, who or what do I find inspiring? That is interesting. You know, one kind of, I find a lot of inspiration being at a great university. I Every year, there are students who come through here uh, from all kinds of backgrounds. It, it used to be that higher education was very much for people with of high income. But Princeton University is a place where there are more and more avenues for people to come in who whose families maybe, you know, in some cases they're they're the first in their fam family to go to college or they are from a family of modest means. And so as higher education finds ways for students to come in, I, I meet the most amazing people. And I was just meeting with some student with a student this morning who has a tremendous amount of potential. Does she want to be a doctor? Does she want to go be a researcher? Does she want to go do good works and work in distressed communities for a year before doing those things? And every year I encounter a whole new crop of students who are like that, both undergraduates who are getting their bachelor's degrees, 
and also graduate students who are getting their PhDs. And, and it's this, uh, it's, it's actually kind of bizarre, honestly, being at a place like Princeton, because there's just these waves of people coming through. And, uh, and, and I'm at, I, I feel very fortunate to be at this focal point where, where they all come through here. And it's like, it's like a little Ellis Island for, uh, for the, for smart people all over America. And I feel like I'm at one of the entry points and they come through here and then I get to see them later on when they've done, you know, amazing things later. So, uh, so it's not one person, but it's just these waves of people who I meet every year. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Sam. This has been fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam Wong PhD. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.